in short, yes, we have absolutely ruined the web for a lot of people. Welcome to Worldwide Waste, a podcast about how digital is killing the planet and what to do about it. In this session, I'm chatting with Jeremy Keat. Jeremy is a philosopher of the internet. Every time I see him speak, I'm struck by his calming presence, his brilliant mind and his deep humanity. Jeremy makes websites with clear left. His books include Dom Scripting, Bulletproof Ajax, HTML5 for web designers, Resilient Web Design, and most recently, Going Offline. Hailing from Aaron's Green Shores, Jeremy maintains his link with Irish traditional music running the community site, The Session. He also indulges a darker side of his bazooki playing in the band Salter Kane. You can find out more about Jeremy at adatio.com. That's A-D-A-C-T-I-O dot com. According to WHO, uh, mobile traffic went up from about 55% pre-coronavirus pandemic to 70% once the crisis hit. And I've seen similar figures come from other health environments in Canada and other areas. Some uh, of their coronavirus pages were reaching over 80% in the Canadian government. Mm -hmm. Yet yet we're looking at situations where uh, an average web page has gone from about 400 KB uh, in 2005 to about, you know, four megabit, uh, megabyte on average, uh, 10 years, 15 years later. And and studies, a major study of about 5 million web pages last year by Backlink, uh, Backlinko found that the average time it takes to fully load a web page is 10.3 seconds on desktop and it can be as long as 27 seconds on mobile and you know the broad question i had after or a couple of questions about have we in a way ruined the web for a lot of people and if so how do we fix it now that they are huge questions but maybe that's a starter yeah no in short yes we have absolutely ruined the web for a lot of people and um I find it I find it so exasperating. It's it's flabbergasting in that, you know, developers, designers, research, we spend all this time, you know, trying to figure out, oh, what do our customers want and what do they respond to well? And we'll do A, B testing and we'll figure out, oh, did this color button do better than that color button? And yet all the evidence staring us in the face is that faster websites will make you more money, give you happier customers, please everyone. And yet for some reason, that's just ignored in favor of weirdly prioritized stuff like, oh, it's so much more important that we have, you know, these great big images or this particular number of fonts or third party things serving up ads. It's it's really bizarre to me how we kind of almost collectively choose to ignore the obvious obvious way to improve the experience for everyone and improve you know business's bottom line in favor of fiddling with the details you know that that might make a slight difference sure you know maybe this particular design is slightly better than that particular design but the you know elephant in the room 
is just uh, how long something's going to take to load. I mean, there's a direct correlation with with frustration. Uh, you know, faster websites mean happier users. It's 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 absolutely, you know, in in no doubt. And I I just don't get it to be honest. I don't get how people can be, you know, working on the web claiming to be doing user centered design, and yet at the same time ignoring this huge factor. I think maybe what what happens is that it's not clear whose job it is to fix this. Like um, maybe designers think it's a technical issue and they don't think about these sort of things when they're doing their designs, usually in a medium that isn't the final medium of HTML, CSS and JavaScript. Usually designers will be working in some kind of you know, graphics design tool, wireframing, whatever it might be. And they might not be considering um, performance effects of decision, design decisions they're making because they think, well, that's for the developers to figure out. And meanwhile, the developers may be thinking, well, my job is to do what the designers have designed and get that out the door. And so they could say, well, it's, I would have loved to have made this a fast website, but the designers designed it this way. So what can I do? <clears throat> so maybe maybe the issue is that it's, um, it isn't clear who's responsible for this. And maybe, you know, we should all be responsible for this, no matter what your job is. Um, this is such a crucial factor in making a good website that everyone should be responsible. But maybe it's one of those situations where when everyone resp is responsible, nobody is. Um, you know, Lara Hogan wrote a whole book on, on web performance a few years back. And a lot of what she talked about was, I mean, it's a lot about the technical side, but she really talked about creating a culture of performance, that making sure everyone understood that no matter what you're doing, to get a website out the door, you are in some way responsible for for the performance. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's absolutely flabbergasting to me, and I I just don't get it. Yeah, and you know, when I saw these stats coming from from WHO, what the images that started coming into my mind were, you know, a doctor or a nurse or a mother or a father uh, using their mobile phone to try and access critical health information and waiting. And in some cases, if, if, if these people, uh, you know, are not on big incomes, they've got poor, you know, um, they've got older phones, um, they've got expensive um, deals data deals because the poor always pay more mm -hmm. you know in in these processes so this this here is affecting people's health and is potentially impacting who will live and who will die in in maybe that's too extreme in some ways to look at it but i'm sure there's certain situations where people cannot access this information because the pages are too badly designed, they're too big, they're too heavy, they're taking too long to download. Uh, and these impacts, they impact people's lives. And yet we blithely, no matter what we say, a kind of, it doesn't seem to make a difference. Yeah, and, and it, you know, if nothing else, mental health is affected by this. There've been studies to show that, you know, the experience of waiting for a slow website to load when you need to get out that information is comparable to watching a horror movie in terms of how your body is is reacting to the stress of the situation. Uh, yeah, I saw that. And, and think of think of how that is doubled or trebled 
when you're looking for symptomatic information for the coronavirus or you're looking for for other vital stuff that you need or you're you're trying to sign up for unemployment benefit or or a whole panoply of other type of of services that you make you know why well <laughs> you know, here's, 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 here's yeah. one way of looking at it what we're going through right now as you know the entire world basically every country individually is one giant edge case and edge cases are the kind of thing where when they come up in the process of designing or building a, a, a website somebody brings up oh but what about this situation what about that situation this person on a poor internet connection this person you know low income and uh, stuff and generally the reaction will be something like, oh, that's an edge case. And there's an unsaid follow-on to that sentence, that's an edge case, which is, and so we won't deal with it. That's an edge case, so we won't deal with it. When really, you know, we could be saying, that's an edge case, and how will we fix it? Um, because, you know, what, we, what we've learned from the world of inclusive design for years is if you take care of the extremes, the middle takes care of itself, right? Mm -hmm. You take care of the, the what, what Eric Meyer calls the stress cases rather than edge cases take care of the stress cases and you'll make something that's better for everyone and i guess what happens is when suddenly everyone gets to experience what a distress case what the edge case is like then maybe finally people will start thinking about this and lo and behold suddenly websites are able to find um that they can create the light versions or the static version with you know strip away those images strip away those scripts and those web fonts and stuff. And it turns out that what people really need is the content, which is usually text, right? It is normally some text on a screen, not technically difficult to get out there, um, but it, it, it seems to require us to all collectively experience an edge case in order to have the, yeah. the empathy, I guess, to deal with it. I, I, maybe, yeah. And But another argument to that would be that, that in the sense that is it really an edge case? Aren't, weren't there just millions of people uh, on crappy mobile phones trying to do stuff that were being excluded, you know, before this crisis? Yeah, we yeah just... absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And this is, this is something I think as an industry we've done for years with many things, which was we will come to a collective um, agreement. Uh, I, I, like to, I use, like to use the term uh, collective um consensual hallucination basically that let's all agree that this is the way things are and ignore the any data that that uh, shows otherwise so a good example was you know for you this is a much more simple and you know from simpler times example but you know back in the 90s into the early 2000s we we're designing uh layouts on the web we said well let's let's all assume everyone has a monitor that's 640 pixels wide and then at some point we came to the collective agreement that no, no, 800 pixels wide is the monitor mm. everybody has. And then it became 1,024 pixels wide. And we all settled on like 960 pixels as this ideal width. And that was all based on just this like collective hallucination. Like, yeah, let's, let's just all agree that that's, that's the truth, even though it was never the truth. People were always on different size screens. Then what comes along is some kind of event that seems to shake things up and seems to um, you know, to show that, oh, we're in a new world now. But actually all it's doing is shining light on the existing situation. That happened when mobile suddenly burst on the scene, you know, in 2007 and so with the iPhone and then other, you know, fully featured smartphones. It's like, oh no, now suddenly people have different sized devices and they're on different network speeds. And actually, no, 
people weren't suddenly in those situations. It's just you started paying attention to those situations more, right? So it was shining a light on something that was already there. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right that what's happening now with, you know, the, the systems being stressed by things like the coronavirus is it's shining a light on situation that was already there. People are already very unevenly distributed with things like um, not just network speed, but processing speed on their devices. You know, we like exactly. to think um, smartphones are very, you know, fast and stuff. Well, maybe yours is, but that is definitely not the, the case. So what's happening is hopefully things are coming to the surface that aren't new. What's coming to the surface is this is the way things always were. Right, right. And you, you joked when we were uh, swapping emails about this that we should stop talking about images and videos, etc., as assets and, and start calling them liabilities. And that, you know, what? but what's the underlying drivers here that make so many of us want, and I include myself throughout my career, to have the highest resolution and the highest quantity of images and videos possible? You know, even in a resolution where we can't actually see the difference and we can't actually hear the difference, but we we want that. Like, what is it? What's the human instinct? And how do we change that mindset? I think, again, there's a disconnect in um, the process we go through when we're making something and then how that thing is experienced when it's actually on the web, which is, you know, dependent on network speeds and processing speeds and stuff. So we'll use things like graphic design tools. And in Photoshop or Figma or Sketch, whatever tool you're using, there's no difference whether you're pulling in a large image or a small image, a high resolution or a low resolution. You don't feel any lag, right? So if you're moving things around in a graphic design tool, the graphic design tool doesn't um, respond more slowly or more quickly depending on the, the weight of those assets or liabilities. Now, maybe if it did, maybe if you literally found it harder to design when you were using those high resolution, you know, high bandwidth things, maybe we would start to behave in a more lean way and only reach for those things when it really counts. I think it, there's kind of, um, in any design medium, you need to have an understanding of what's cheap and what's expensive. Mm. To, to explain what I mean, like in if you're a print designer, then you're used to the idea that you can have as many different fonts as you want, as many different weights of the font. It's uh, it's cheap. It doesn't cost anything more to do that. Um, whereas, you know, and, and presume just for, let's say, a, a poster or a flyer, something that's going to be printed out, the number of colors you use might be expensive, right? That might be something where uh, you might have to constrain yourself to a two-color or four-color um, palette. Now, that's different on the web. In fact, it's exactly the opposite way around. On the web, use as many colors as you want because colors are... are free basically but every time you add a new font or an extra weight you are increasing the, the size so having an understanding of what's cheap and what's expensive is important but i think you kind of have to feel it to understand it and we don't feel it when we're designing there's a real disconnect between the process of the design and what's actually experienced by people right. and even when we are loading websites we're local we're loading like the local copies that we have on our machines and we're evaluating how things look and how things behave, but not in terms of the arrow of time, right? We don't right. get, we don't throttle our connections to um, to simulate what it will actually be like for different people uh, loading that. And yet, as I said, like the, it's the number one 
factor in user experience, in my opinion, is is speed, is time. The arrow of mm -hmm. time. It doesn't matter how beautiful the thing is if if it's going to take thirty seconds for it to be to be loaded, right? Um, so there's this real disconnect in our experience as we're designing and building something to the end user's experience. I wonder, Jeremy, you've touched on something there, a, a design challenge. Can we, you know, design for feel, you know, in some way in the design process itself so that designers feel a bit of the pain as they're making a decision? Uh, is, is that something that, you know, the designers of the tools of designers can be thinking about? Um, I think it's it's maybe more of a cultural thing. It's like there there are ways of getting people to to get it, and um, I've seen some people share these ideas. Like every day of the week, they have a different um, kind of exercise they'll do. Like on one day, they'll deliberately throttle their connection. On another day, they deliberately use a different browser than they're used to. Um, on another day, they 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 switch to um, you know monochrome um, display instead of full color. Things like this. Uh, I know that the New York Times, I think they had something like a low bandwidth Friday or something where literally everyone in the office, you know, their internet connection was throttled to try and get that feeling for what it's like to experience that. So I think those kind of exercises can be good if they were, I mean, I, I, I said it's a shame that, you know, the design tools, they don't enforce that feeling. And it would be wonderful if they did make it like more painful, the more um, expensive your your the assets were, but I don't see many people uh, signing up to buy that software then. So we started talking about digital waste, about files and formats and storing stuff and keeping copies and about how the waste dynamic is changing because so much now is stored in the cloud and the cloud is hugely more energy intensive and dust wasteful than your hard drive, than what you do locally. Here's something interesting where it does tie into the waste question is that in terms of digital preservation, which is something I actually think is is really important as is preservation of our culture, preservation of, of what we create. Um, there's there's a term in digital preservation called blocks, which is lots of copies keep stuff safe. And I think broadly it's true that if you have just one copy of something, the chances of it surviving a long time are are slim. But as soon as it's distributed, uh, and it's got a reasonable license attached to it, then it has, stands a greater chance of, of surviving. But you see the downside is that now you're distributing, and that again, that feels like a, a victimless thing, right? Oh, I'm just making multiple copies of something. But what you're actually doing is using up more energy. Um, so I, I am a little conflicted here because I, I'm a great believer in digital preservation. And I, I think broadly speaking, the principle of locks, lots of copies keep stuff safe, is true. But I'm also aware then of the cost of, you know, having too many copies of things. Um. I then brought up what I term the zettabyte Armageddon, about how we are creating and storing so much data. In the last two years, we have created more data than was created in all of previous history. And 90% of this data is crap. I am going to I'm going to fundamentally disagree with you there. I I don't think the issue is with cleaning up because once the thing has been created and it's just sitting on a hard drive somewhere, it isn't causing any harm. 
a, a hard drive, let's say you've got a hard drive that has a certain storage capacity. Let's say it's a, a terabyte hard drive. The arrangement of the ones and zeros on that terabyte hard drive don't waste energy once they've been arranged. Now, the act of making something uses energy. The act of putting it onto a hard drive, yes, that uses energy, absolutely. But once it's on there, this idea that it needs to be cleaned up in order to save energy is not true. A, a, you know, a hard drive weighs the same whether it's full of ones or whether it's full of zeros. It's, no, it's not like a bin bag getting full of stuff. The issue is actually the opposite. The issue is not that, oh, no, people aren't even accessing this stuff after three months. No, that's great. If nobody's accessing it, that means it's not consuming energy. That is a good thing. Uh, the the waste comes when people do access things that they don't need, right? So, you know, millions of people every day pulling down JavaScript files that don't really add anything to a website or pulling down images that don't add anything. That's waste because there's there's no need for it. But And, and if we're going to clean up, let's clean up in the right area. Let's clean up in the stuff that doesn't add anything. Now, to say that 90% of the stuff being created is crap, sure, okay, that might be, I mean, that's, that's probably objectively true. Most of it is crap. But I'll also say this. You don't know the future value of something being created today. So let's say our definition of crap is going to include, you know, some teenager posting a blog post about something we don't care about or some YouTube video of something that, you know, is just objectively not important. Say, fine. But, you know, that teenager may turn out to be um, the first person to walk on Mars. That teenager may turn out to be a future president of the United States. But we don't know the value of something created today to the future. Or, you know, you talked about cuneiform tablets, uh, which are usually valuable sources of information to us. And most of them are about accounting and porn. Those, those are the, the, the bits of everyday life. So I actually think we should be preserving these useless bits of of self-expression that people do all the time. the As Patrick Cavanaugh said, the or, wherever life pours forth ordinary plenty. Because once they've been created, there isn't a cost. The cost came at the point of creation. Now, we could encourage people to be, you know, circumspect in what they create and maybe don't upload everything and maybe only, you know, self-edit a bit. But once something is on a hard drive, unless somebody requests that file, it isn't harming. Okay. Two things there. The hard drive, as we said, has a big energy cost, you know, significant energy cost and pollution. And the hard drive will not last forever. Right, but that energy cost came at when it was created. As you say, 80% of the cost it was does, when it was created, regardless yeah. what's going to end up on that hard drive. So, exactly. So, buy less hard drives. Oh, yeah. You, sure. know, the, 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 you know, I mean, we are buying so much storage. That... I, I, that storage costs the earth in materials uh, and in energy. There's a, a much higher manufacturing energy for a digital product than for a physical product because of the complexity of the materials and, and the manufacturing process. So that hard drive uh, costs money and costs energy and creates waste. Just because it's all created, all the waste has been generated, does not mean it's not waste. And if we now buy 100 hard drives instead of 50 hard drives, you know, that's 50 extra hard drives that are causing the deforestation of, of the planet, etc. And they'll need to be replaced in five years or 10 years. Where's the data going to go? 
when the hard drive corrodes. Now that that's a fair point that uh, and you know Moore's law does come into this that yes it is expensive to produce hard drives these days but you know 10 years ago it would have been what 1000 times more expensive um oh, a million times a million like times, back yeah. in the 6 a million, a million but see this is the problem Jeremy I think this is what comes core and you said it earlier about the cost a, a close to zero cost is not a zero cost like we almost have the impression that it's nothing you know that that and and another thing that's happened with hard disks is that their their prices have stabilized in the last three or four years. They're not coming down, uh, they're not dropping, you know, in the exponential rates that they were dropping in previous times. So they they seem to have a kind of stabilized in their in their pricing structure in the last in the last four years. But but we move on from it. But but the idea is that you know this storage. Even local, which is, I totally agree with you, it's much, much better than the cloud, but it still has a cost because we had to manufacture that disk and that disk will, will not last as long as a cuneiform tablet. So if we have to replace a million hard drives in 10 years. There's this great blog post actually um, uh, by, a, by a developer. Uh, the blog post is uh, Danny Van Kooten is his name, and he's got a, a blog post called CO2 Emissions on the Web. And he he tried to trace his own contributions in terms of he made like a WordPress plugin. So it's one file that gets distributed very, you know, broadly to lots of people. And he did the back of the napkin cal calculations for how much energy is, is being wasted effectively by what he's put out there into the world because of this, you know, multiple copies of this one thing. And I think that's that's the area to focus our energy is 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 the kind of unnecessary duplication. But I think we need to think about the, the machines as well, that, you know, we've got 10 billion smartphones since 2007, and they don't get recycled. Uh, about 10% of them are, uh, from the data I have actually get recycled. We create as much e-waste every year. We create about 50 million tonnes, which is basically the same tonnage of all the commercial aircraft ever, ever built. The, the machines that we use to access digital have very short life cycle. They, they last three to five years. This, this is true. And it, this, um, this is something that I'm not keen on at all. I've had my phone now for many years and I, I don't want to upgrade it. I, I'm happy with it. It does everything I want. Um, so I agree that and it is, it is kind of shocking. And, and uh, we're seeing you know, right now the European Union stepping in with right to repair laws, which I think are super important that people can make one device last last a long time just to be a bit of an asshole here though i'm gonna i'm gonna put i'm gonna point to a little counter argument because this is something that made me think as well i saw an, an article a while back about this like yes there's this wastage now of like somebody buys a phone they use it for a couple of years and then it ends up going to landfill it's not being recycled that's that's bad that's terrible but what we're not seeing is what would have been created and what would have been going to landfill had the phone not existed. So we're not seeing landfills full of uh, cameras, camcorders, dictaphones, um, photo albums, right? There's, there's all the stuff that is concentrated into a device that we, we can't, you know, A-B test the universe, so we can't compare the wastage, but you could imagine how much physical device wastage would be happening if phones hadn't come along and kind of wiped out entire product lines of, 
cameras and camcorders and dictaphones and all this stuff. But like I said, I'm kind of just being the asshole there playing the. No, no I, 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 I think that's a very interesting argument. And I mean, I love my smartphone, <laughs> but I've, I've started reducing my use of things. I used to always buy the biggest screens I could get. And, you know, and, and now I'm beginning to think, do I need this thing? You know, can I can I do it on my laptop? So I'm trying to do far more work on my laptop. You know, just being conscious that not stopping, not stopping. These devices are amazing. And, and that's a brilliant point you brought up that, you know, the benefits. It's not that this is all bad, but that we just become a bit more conscious of the cost of all this stuff. I, w- I would say there's there's an opportunity there as well. You know, if you let's say you're a device manufacturer trying to break into the uh, smartphone field, which would be a very tough field to try and break into because you've got these large companies that dominate it. Well, you know, as Marty Newmar is always saying, when when someone else zigs, you should zag. So if all the advertising around smartphones is like, oh, you need to get the latest and greatest one. It's got the best features, blah blah. And so the 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 general consensus is, oh, you upgrade a phone every couple of years. You, you get rid of your old one, you get a new one. Um, can you find a way to market the exact opposite, which is buy our phone and we last for a decade, right? That would be a really interesting marketing pitch that yeah. you'd be able to, you know, and the larger companies just couldn't compete with that because that is very much against uh, how they sell things and what their business model yeah. is, their business model relying on that um, upgrading every couple of years. So there's actually an opportunity here for smart uh, companies, I think, to get in and and market to people who are beginning more and more to think about, I don't, not only do I, I don't need to upgrade, but I actively don't want to. And I'm starting to feel like almost like I'm I'm being very encouraged to upgrade my phone. Right, almost shamed for having a very old phone at this point. Like you feel, if you're made to feel bad about it. And I would love if there was some company who said, "Hey, we we're gonna cater to you. We're gonna we're gonna make a phone that will last ten years, guaranteed." Yeah. Totally. I mean, this is these are the ideas we need. These are the type of. It's cool to be old. <laughs> it's cool to have. <laughs> you know, it's cool to have the oldest thing. You know, rather than. Then, you know, that we, we, we somehow shift the cultural zeitgeist that, you know, has got in fast fashion. You know, we buy five times more clothes than we did 20 years ago and we wear them for half as long. That we shift that, you know, it's cool to have old clothes. You know, it's cool, it's cool to have old. But that's a, that's a, a, a different cultural challenge. Let, let's get back to some of the stuff, the areas that, that you've been writing about or thinking about. In particular, you know, you, you've uh, separated first-time visitors to a website and repeat visitors, mm. uh, and that you, you think that there's, there's very energy-sensible strategies for treating those type of visitors differently. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to figure out what kind of service you offer. Are you offering the kind of service where people come once and then don't, probably won't come again and if the uh, the answer is yes then okay then you should focus your energy on making that initial visit um as lightweight as possible right i mean i think you should focus your energy in that area and no matter what but if you are offering something where people are going to come back again and again um then what you don't want to do is have their second visit and their third visit and their fourth visit cost as much as their first visit right if there's some way you say okay well they've already visited once so how can I use that 
so that they don't have to download all the same stuff again, so that they don't have to download that CSS file and that JavaScript file and those lo logos or the icons or whatever every single time they return um, and, and put you know steps into place accordingly. Now, I have seen people take this too far um, where they architected the, you know, an, an application, a web application usually, because they think, yeah, everyone's going to come back at least twice. Um, and they really front load that first experience. They, they dump everything into that first visit. And you can't even use the app, you know, till 30, 40 seconds have passed. But then the thinking being, ah, but when they come back again, it'll be faster. I'm like, yeah, but maybe you've taken it too far when you've done that. So I think there is this, this line to be, to be threaded between trying to make the initial visit as lightweight as possible, but once somebody has visited for the first time, ensuring that then the next visit will be much, much more lightweight. And this is why I got excited about technologies like service workers and there's the cache API in, in browsers now that allow you to, to have more control over what gets stored um, locally and say, yeah, you next time you visit, it's not gonna take as long as the first time you visit. Um, so I think it's important to kind of just have have an understanding of what kind of service you're offering and where you should be pulling the levers there in terms of prioritization. You're prioritizing first-time visits uh, or repeat visits. Right. Um, and of course, that comes from that, that model of thinking about making it easier for people and faster for people to do what they need to do. In relation to that, you've talked a good bit about uh, concepts like progressive enhancement. Uh, certainly, my understanding of that is that it's, it's, it seems like a really positive mental model for, for developing what I would be thinking about, a, you know, not just a, a human experience, but an earth experience. It seems like, a, like an approach that is more economical with its its philosophy and its use of materials, could could you could you talk a little bit about it? Sure, because I think I think there are some misunderstandings about progressive enhancement. I think I think some people think progressive enhancement limits you in terms of what you can do. Like, oh, I can't use the latest and greatest technologies if I'm using progressive enhancement. But actually, that's not true. You can use all the latest and greatest technologies. It's just how you go about using them. Um, so the idea with progressive enhancement is you you again you have to do a bit of a prioritization exercise to begin with. You have to decide. What's fundamental? What is the one thing that my service offers uh, that people need to be able to do? So that might be they need to be able to read this article, this piece of information, or they need to be able to fill in this form. They need to be able to click on this button to you know check out an item of clothing. Once you've identified the core functionality, not all the functionality, the core functionality, then you say, okay, what technology can I use to make that as widely available to the vast number of people as possible. Now that usually means boring technology. That usually means a very, you know, using the simplest possible technology. On the web, that's probably going to be HTML if you can get away with it. You know, an article just structured in, in paragraph elements, uh, a form that's just using straight up input tags, right? Um, now this is where some people I think misunderstand progressive enhancement because they kind of stop there and they think, well, yeah, we could all build like that, but that would be a very boring website. And I agree, that would be a very boring website. So the third step, which is hugely important, is you then enhance. You then think, okay, now that I've got a baseline, I've created something that I know works for the most amount of people, this, this foundational um, part of what I'm building. Now, how can I improve the experience? 
using technology? How can I um, make it a nicer experience? And that's when you can start layering things on. You can start adding in functionality using JavaScript. You can start using um, browser APIs. You know, if the browser supports geolocation or accelerometer or whatever kind of things, yeah, go ahead, you know, start using that stuff. And with each one of these things, you, you can usually like test for support. You can say, okay, does the browser support this? If it does, great, download this JavaScript file and, and do this. Um, you can also apply this in a macro scale of, of, let's say, images. Let's say, okay, it's super important that we have an image, like a, uh, it's got an informational image on this page. Okay, fine. But then begin with, send that image in the lowest possible size, right? The smallest file size. And then you can say, okay, now, am I on a wider screen? Can I afford to send, you know, a large image? Am I on a faster connection? Can I afford that? Then you can augment and enhance. So the idea with progressive enhancement is you, you, you think about the core functionality, you provide that core functionality with the simplest possible technology, and then you go crazy. Then you then you add in you know all your animations and your web fonts and and you know all the stuff that that delights people. You add that stuff on top. And to be clear, I think some people think that progressive enhancement means I have to make all the functionality available to everyone, regardless of of their technology stack. Like even stuff that requires JavaScript. Now it's not about all functionality. It's your core functionality. So I remember, for example. Um, uh, a friend of mine who worked on the Boston Globe redesign years ago, which was one of the first big responsive sites, he said, you know, there are lots of things on the Boston Globe site that require JavaScript to work, but reading the news is not one of them, right? So there's this distinction between what your core offering is and everything else around that. And be, I'm not dismissing the everything else around that, that everything else stuff is usually um, how companies differentiate. And that's where the user experience and the delighters and the... Um, the really like gorgeous little touches happen and that stuff is not to be diminished and i'm not saying don't do that stuff i'm just saying that stuff needs to be layered on top of a solid baseline of providing the the bare minimum now what we're seeing interestingly enough is in these emergency situations like the coronavirus when when sites start getting slammed with traffic is that if they've built things the right way they can then peel back some of those layers they can peel away some of those enhancements and just provide the core content, you know, structured in that, that sort of base level stuff. So if you build a progressive enhancement, it's, it means you can layer stuff on top. It also means you can then strip those layers away, which is mm. hugely important in these kind of times. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like a, a really important thing to be able, able to do. Just building on that or connected with that, um, Eric Muir recently wrote an article about, about static, that uh, pages should be delivered as static pages where possible, uh, rather than dynamically driven from a database. What would be your opinions there? Yeah, I mean, so I'll, I'll just step back a bit and, and try and define some terms okay. uh, in terms of how pages get served up. Like from a user's point of view, it's... Um, it's the same experience no matter what website you go to is then you type a URL, you click on a link, so you're making a request and you get back a page, right? Now, from a developer's point of view, how you respond to that request, how you build that page, there are a couple of different ways to do it. Um, one way is you, you're waiting for the request on the server and when it comes, you assemble the page on the fly. Okay, they've requested this particular news article. Right, grab the uh, header file over here 
um, go into the database, pull out that news article. Now we've got the content and then grab the footer from over there. Okay, now that assembled page, we send down the pipe. So that's, I'd, I'd compare that to kind of like um, a short order cook who's, who's frying something up when the order comes in, right? Now the other way of doing it is you assume you're gonna have orders coming in and like a TV chef, you, you, here's one I made earlier. So you pre-assemble the page with the header, the, new, the article and the footer, and it's literally sitting there as an HTML file on the server. And then when the request comes in for that file, you serve up that HTML file. Um, now, I don't want to speak in absolutes, but I think it's safe to say that there's very little that's going to be faster than serving up a static HTML file. Even if you've got a super optimized database, it's always going to be a little longer to, to go in there, grab that result and bring it back. So serving up static files um, can give you a huge boost. Now, there are some kinds of operations that simply can't do that. If you're um, performing a search on a website, you need to do some kind of lookup. There's probably some kind of relational database needed. But for you know informational pages, um, yeah, absolutely. If you can pre-bake, if you like, um, the pages, then yes, do it. Because the other thing is that if you have um, a, a large influx of traffic, uh, a database is going to struggle to handle all those connections. Whereas web servers, you know, going back to the birth of the web, who are just responsible for serving up HTML files, they can actually scale up pretty well to, to doing that. And then you've got other things like adding in uh, CDNs, content delivery networks, which can really, really help there. And they work especially well with um, static uh, files just waiting to be served. So this, this idea of sort of pre-baking as much as possible is catching on. And, and what I like is that it's, it's becoming one of the cool things to do in, in, the, in the dev community, because quite often a lot of the cool things to do are not very good for the end user, right? Oh, it's now it's cool to use this giant JavaScript library and you know, makes the experience worse for the end user. But there's this whole term now, Jamstack, um, which is just a buzzword really, but what's behind it is this idea of serving up static files. Um, and to be honest, it's it's not sold for the user experience benefit. It's sold more as, oh, your developer experience will be better because you just have to deal with uh, generating this stuff once and not have to worry about databases and you don't have to maintain a server with a database on it. Um, so they're selling it in terms of the developer experience. But actually, as Eric points out, the user experience is, is always going to be better and it's more robust and more re resilient to these stress cases to this sudden influx and emergency situation. Lots of people are trying to access this. Um, yeah, this, this idea of, of static files trumping databases is a pretty solid concept. Right, and I, I tested this about a year ago on a site uh, and found that a, a typical page uh, coming from the database was taking about five seconds to fully load. And that if it was it was if it was done as static, it was down to about two and a half three seconds. Would would that seem like a reasonable proportion that in many situations you could get that sort of rough differences in performance in the download if you went static with as you say the right type of pages, the informational type of pages? Uh, yeah, I mean. It's going to vary, and some databases are much more optimized than others. But even with the best optimized database, there's always going to be a little bit more of a an expensive operation to do to just go in there and grab something and and return the result than 
just serving a pre-made file. Um, but I've seen this myself. I mean, it, it works really well when you've got just yeah static pages, you know, informational pages. But what do you do about the dynamic pages? Things that are you know updated very frequently, or they rely on you know data coming from multiple sources, and they're gener you know they're generated at runtime. But even there, there might be opportunities to pre-make sort of pre-bake. Um, bits of a page, right? Have these files sort of ready to go. And then you still do some assembly, but maybe that assembly doesn't involve going to a database. Um, or you can send down as much static as possible and then maybe use JavaScript on the client side to pull into the more dynamic stuff. Um, as long as it's not core functionality, I would say that's reasonable to do. It's like you can pull in the pull in the weather widget using JavaScript, sure. Pull in the, you know, extra stuff in the sidebar using JavaScript so that the core stuff comes down quickly. But yeah, in general, um, yeah, static files are, are just are going to be faster. And if you can find a way to to, to use that, to use some kind of caching and pre-baking, um, it's worth doing it. Final question. From a web development and design perspective, what's the biggest thing you've learned from, from this uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic so far it's interesting because i'm well aware of confirmation bias like i see people you know on social media and their interpretations of uh, what's happening now and what the world might look like afterwards and funnily enough for everyone it's confirming what they already believed right it's it's, it's confirming their pre-existing political um, affiliations it's confirming their, their ideas about how the world should be run. I don't see anybody having, you know, Damascene conversions because of this. So I'm well aware that how I, on the web, just looking at how the web is responding to this in terms of, say, performance, um, I'm probably just going to see what I already believe getting confirmed by this. Uh, so I, I already thought that web pages were too big and there's too much uh, JavaScript and unnecessary uh, images and what I'm seeing with, um, you know, vital information trying to get out there fast and stuff like that is, aha, I was right all along. There was too much JavaScript. There was too much unnecessary images. So, um, frankly, I'm, I'm seeing just confirmation bias for what I already believed. And I'm well aware that that's, uh, that's a, a human bias. So take it with a huge pinch of salt. Okay, so just a, a follow-on to that. Is there anything that has disturbed that preset set of knowledge or perspectives or attitudes that you have? Is there is there anything that has, whether from web development or design or ge general, that has made you begin to rethink something that you really believed before and that there's a little seed of doubt or maybe now, uh, I would say not on the performance front. Not on not on the idea that you know web pages should be leaner, and we shouldn't be serving up. I haven't seen anything to make me change my mind on that. In broader terms, though, um, maybe rethinking some things. Over the past few years, there's been lots of uh, examples of how the internet's terrible and uh, all the negative consequences of of what the internet does. And I have to say, um, over the past few weeks, there's a lot more seeing how the internet can be a great place. And that's kind of in a, in a good way, making me reevaluate. I've even seen some people have quite large, not changes of heart, but 
rebalancing. Like um, my friend Mache, um, he runs idlewords.com. For years, he's been lobbying and, and working politically against surveillance capitalism and the fact that these large companies on the internet are tracking us, tracking our movements and, and invading our privacy. Uh, and he's not changing his mind about that, but now he's seeing how, well, could we use that? Can we um, take this existing apparatus that's in place and use it for better tracking of people who have the coronavirus, better tracking down of people who are one degree of separation away from someone who has the coronavirus? I mean, if we can do that for people who looked at an advertisement of, you know, bunny slippers, then if there's a way to use that same technology to slow the spread of this virus, then should we be doing that? And, you know, it brings up the interesting questions about uh, liberty and, and freedom and security and, and all that. Um, but that's been an interesting one to observe. And I haven't, you know, made my mind up on that in one way or the other, but it, it has, it is an example of, of maybe reevaluating um, pre-existing ideas about technology in light of this new situation. Yeah, and maybe that's a good way to end that that we we do we can't help reinforcing our own ideas or looking for confirmation bias, but we should step back a little bit and and, and see, you know, are are there things that we need to reevaluate or rethink or come at from a different angle uh, in this crucial moment in in the history of the world. So I think you've given us loads of uh, ideas and loads of loads of thoughts and, and, and practical things to do, Jeremy. So I'd like to really thank you very much uh, for your time um, and, uh, you know, just really appreciate uh, you doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me, you know, vent. I tend to rant on and on once you wind me up and let me go. Oh, that's what we need. <laughs> If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, I've published a book called Worldwide Waste. You can find out more at jerrymcgovern.com slash www. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversational community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can join the Slack community and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Or join the HCD newsletter, where you can win books and get updates. Subscribe to our content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And listen to any of our design podcasts, such as Getting Started in Design, Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scullion, or Power of Ten with Andy Pullane, or Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, ProdPod with Adrian Tan and Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook. Thanks for listening and see you next time.